Chapter 2. Challenging Perceptions. What is mental health anyway? I have noted that an assumption that is often made, at an institutional level and beyond, is that because we are highly educated individuals pursuing a PhD, we already know what mental health is and how to manage it. I'm not going to make this assumption. I figure, if we are not taught about what mental health is, how on earth can we go on to manage it? Learning more about mental health from a holistic perspective definitely helped me, allowing me to actively work towards improving my own mental health management. For our understanding, it is important to differentiate between mental health and mental illness. Often used interchangeably, there is a huge difference. Mental health is something we all have, just like physical health, and it can be good or bad depending on our circumstances, fluctuating naturally. The World Health Organization, WHO, defines mental health as a state of well-being in which every individual realises their own potential, can cope with the normal stresses of life, can work productively and fruitfully, and is able to make a contribution to their community. And this is the definition I will use throughout this book. Being able to work productively and fruitfully and contribute to society underpins the PhD experience. And it is likely, for many of us, why we embark on a PhD in the first place. It is worth noting that this is idealised. No one copes with stress perfectly every moment of every day or works productively all the time. Good mental health is achieving this state most of the time. If our mental health is affected for a long period of time, it is possible to develop mental illness. It is something that some of us may never experience, with approximately 1 in 10 in the world population having mental illness. Mental illness is described as a range of mental health disorders that affect mood, thinking and behaviour. Not an exhaustive list, some mental illnesses that are present in the PhD population include eating disorders such as anorexia nervosa and binge eating disorder, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, trichotillomania, hair pulling, dermatillomania, skin picking, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, including experiencing panic attacks, obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, chronic major depressive disorder, MDD, more commonly known as depression, and generalised anxiety disorder, GAD. This means that providing holistic support to PhD students is a complex task. The good news is that mental illnesses are recognisable conditions, which means that with access to healthcare they can be professionally diagnosed and a treatment plan can be put in place. Of course, access to healthcare is not always available, and I want to acknowledge this. Inequity in healthcare can also contribute negatively to the PhD experience. The mental health continuum. There are a range of models to describe mental health and how mental illness intersect to assist with understanding. The one I find most useful is the mental health continuum model discussed by Keyes, 2002. This model explores how mental health is something we all inherently have, just like physical health. Visually, this might be thought of as a dial, like a speedometer in a car or a gas pressure gauge. When we are in a good place with our mental health, matching the definition as described by the WHO, 
we sit on the left-hand side of the dial. When our mental health is impacted, we move towards the right as the pressure increases. Periods of high stress can move our position over to the right, with long-term exposure leading to distress and possibly triggering mental illness, where one in two PhD students find themselves, as mentioned earlier. If left unchecked, mental health crises can arise, represented in this analogy by the dial being full, resulting in the pressure building up so it becomes dangerous. Crisis can look different to different people, but may involve frequent thoughts of suicidal ideation and intentions to self-harm. In this situation, immediate help is needed. Over the course of our lifetime, our position on this mental health continuum may change. Where exactly the needle on the dial sits at any one time depends on a combination of genetic factors as well as environmental factors. Genetic factors can influence our susceptibility to mental illness. This means that dependent on family history, the needle may intrinsically be positioned more to the right than for someone with no family history of mental illness. This may result in being more predisposed to reaching a crisis point. Not all hope is lost, however. It is important to remember that even if we are predisposed to mental illness through genetic factors, this does not necessarily mean we will develop mental illness over the course of our lifetime. Further, although many of us may enter the academy with pre-existing mental illness, this does not mean we necessarily see worsening over time. With management, living with mental illness and thriving is absolutely attainable. Environmental factors also play a role in the needle position. Movement may be triggered by stressful events, such as the loss of a family member, hormonal changes, financial distress, juggling family life, physical illness, a global pandemic, or even embarking on a PhD programme. Whilst many of these may be outside of our control, fortunately we can work to increase the capacity of the pressure vial and make it easier for us to manage our mental health. For example, access to the right medications, support structures and accommodations can help us stay well. More on this in Chapter 4. Systemic issues both inside the academy and out discussed in detail in Chapter 8, such as racism, bullying and harassment, a poor supervisory relationship, financial concerns, ableism and more, also influence how we feel and the pressures we are under. Of course, in these instances, where the research culture we work in itself needs reform, the onus for change should not be on us, but until change is realised, we often have to draw on self-care and support for survival. Barriers to seeking help. It is important to recognise that some of the common thoughts we might have when experiencing mental illness can be internalised barriers that prevent us from seeking help. These can include common thoughts I had during my own mental health journey. I'm not sick enough. We tend to overestimate how long we must be struggling with our mental health before seeking help. In reality, as little as two weeks of noticing a decline in your mental health is more than enough to go seek help from a medical professional. Others have it worse. Comparing ourselves with others can be a dangerous game when it comes to our mental health. Everyone has different life experiences, different genetic factors and different environmental factors that influence their mental health. Just because someone else has it worse does not mean that you are undeserving of help. Struggling is relative to our own life experiences. 
This was perhaps the most challenging barrier for me personally to face. I had a supportive partner, was surrounded by friends and family, and an excellent PhD supervisor. What did I have to complain about? That is the thing with depression. Our brains lie to us. It is also important to remember that suffering is not a competition. I'm doing everything right, though. We can have a fantastic self-care plan and be implementing it well to look after our mental health and think that, because it's not working, that we are unfixable. This isn't true. There is a range of medical, spiritual and community-based support out there if you know where to look, discussed further in Chapter 12. It is also important to realise that self-care is not one-size-fits-all and can be very different person to person. I should be grateful. Everything might be fine in our lives, e.g. good friends, family, financial security, and yet we still struggle with our mental health. This can result in feelings of shame and guilt because we feel we should be grateful, and yet we cannot shake feeling low. It's important to remember that mental illness is exactly that, an illness. Even with the best support in place, it may take medical intervention and time to feel better. I don't deserve help. Mental ill health can often be combined with low self-worth. We can get caught up in the idea that those around us would be better off without us. Not true. Everyone has a value. Everyone is deserving of help to get better. This includes you. It is also necessary to acknowledge that the barriers you might face, both internal and external, are dependent on our culture, ethnicity, religion, language and more. This can make overcoming these barriers difficult, although difficult doesn't mean impossible. Recognising the signs. One of the biggest challenges when struggling with a mental illness is recognising and accepting that there is a problem in the first place. This is because we must face the fact that not only are we unwell, but we are also worthy of help. How mental ill health presents is different for different people. Here are some you may be experiencing. Anger, including channeling that anger internally towards yourself. Self-harming, including food restriction and or binge eating. Feeling like you don't deserve to be where you are. Struggling to find joy, even in activities you used to enjoy. Intrusive, negative thoughts, including disaster spiralling. To give you an example of disaster spiralling for me personally, I might see that it is raining outside, think it might be more dangerous to drive in, which is true and important to be aware of, but then I might also think about all my loved ones and that they might get hurt in an accident because of it. Suddenly, my thoughts have gone not from A to B, but from A to Z in terms of hypothesised scenarios. Difficulty with motivation and or concentration. Feeling that others will be better off without you experiencing suicidal thoughts, finding it hard to feel anything at all, feeling emotionally numb, feelings of tiredness, lethargy, increased stimming, which is defined as repetitive body movements or noises for self-stimulation, such as finger flicking, clapping or rocking back and forth, feeling hopeless, experiencing episodes of extreme hyperactivity, mania, followed by lows, when struggling with your mental health, it is also possible for our bodies to present stress in other ways. 
which may at first not appear to be unrelated issues. In the final year of my PhD, I had a persistent eye twitch that simply would not go away, which I now realise was stress-related. Not an exhaustive list, but some of the physical symptoms you may encounter include experiencing brain fog where you struggle to focus, stomach aches, pains, gastrointestinal issues, eye twitch, low libido, nausea, mouth ulcers, eczema flares, feeling dizzy, panic attacks, weight loss or weight gain. Note, when experiencing physical symptoms, the first port of call should always be a medical professional. While these may be caused by stress, they can also be caused by a range of other conditions. If you recognise yourself in some of these statements, it is likely that your mental health has taken a hit. Recognising that you may need help is the first step in getting better. In Chapter 12, exactly how to get help is explored in detail. Helping others. Recent work by Loisel 2020 showed that 81% of PhD students have supported another PhD student with their mental health, and that 83.8% of those students were struggling with their own mental health at the time. Thus, it is important to recognise the signs of mental ill health in friends and colleagues too. I know, given my own experience with mental illness, I'm more compelled to help those around me, even if that is at the detriment of my own mental health. Putting others first may seem like the right thing to do, but looking after your own mental health means that you can be well to support others. It is important to put your own oxygen mask on first. With a friend or colleague, you may notice one or several of the following. Changes in mood, withdrawal from social events, lack of personal hygiene, changes in behaviour, seeming anxious, lack of concentration, changes in working hours, i.e. arriving later than typical for that person. Most of all is the notion that people don't pretend to be sick. Typically, they pretend to be well. Having had conversations with people long after when I was experiencing suicidal thoughts during my PhD, I think I was incredibly good at presenting a happy version of myself to the world, even though I was anything but. This made it even more difficult for those around me to realise I was struggling. In the competitive academic environment, it can feel much safer to create a facade and make everyone think that you are coping, even if you're not. This also means we may have friends and colleagues around us that are struggling internally, but externally, to everyone else, they seem absolutely fine. This can be difficult to navigate, as if there are no signs of distress, there is no indication of there being a problem. This is where checking in with people directly is really useful. We can be cautious when it comes to asking others directly about their mental health. In part, this is related to stigma, but also because it's a delicate conversation and many of us are not quite sure how best to ask how someone is really doing. The fact of the matter is you're not going to put the idea of suicide into someone's head by asking, are you suicidal? Or how is your mental health? But you may give them the opportunity to open up to you. Note, in some cases, a less direct approach such as, how are you feeling? may be more appropriate, as cultural differences may also come into play where a less direct approach is preferred. 
This can make having conversations complex, but if in doubt, ask. Of course, timing and location are important. It is likely better to ask questions in a private conversation, not a public format. Asking someone to go for a coffee and chat with you, for example, may enable a one-to-one chat. It is also okay to set boundaries. When we're struggling, sometimes we do not have the capacity to help others. In this instance, encouraging someone to disclose to someone else that can help or point them in the right direction of support may be the right option for you. What mental health isn't. Whilst we are discussing mental illness, I think it is also important to highlight what mental health isn't. Given the stigma that still exists around mental health, we may hear comments from those around us, including colleagues, friends and family, based on their own biases. These can be unintentionally hurtful. Mental health is not weakness, not attention-seeking, not being lazy, not a poor outlook on life, not being stuck in a rut, not not trying hard enough, not an excuse, not a sin, not a punishment, not a way to avoid hard work, and perhaps, most importantly of all, mental illness is not your fault. If you had a broken leg, the chances are that none of these statements would be said to you. Mental illness is exactly that, an illness, which deserves as much compassion as any other physical illness. To declare or not to declare, that is the question. Choosing to declare your mental illness prior to embarking on your PhD programme is a tough one. There may be benefits to acknowledging your history of mental illness ahead of time. For example, getting specific accommodations from your university to help with your studies or simply highlighting to your PhD supervisor that this is something you have found challenging in the past so that they know to look out for any signs you might be struggling and provide additional support if necessary. PhD student one states, Disclosing my mental illness was a relatively positive experience. My two supervisors understood things might take me a little longer and that my work would come in bursts of nothing and everything. The university itself was very helpful from helping me resit a year in undergraduate to giving me over a year of extensions for my PhD due to the COVID-19 pandemic and mental health. Declaring can also potentially cause issues. In the United Kingdom, mental health is a protected characteristic due to the Equality Act 2010, alongside others, including age, disability, sex, sexual orientation, gender reassignment, pregnancy, marriage, or civil partnership, race, religion or belief. This makes discrimination over mental health unlawful, yet this does not mean discrimination does not happen. Further, when it comes to invisible illnesses, when declaring it might mean you are not believed. This goes to show just how much further we have to go towards improving mental health support. PhD student 2 states, I chose not to disclose my mental health issues for fear of being treated differently to my peers. I still to this day do not know if it was the right decision, but I think you likely know best at the time. It's important to do what feels right for you. This makes advising declaration of mental illnesses difficult. It really depends on the specific circumstance you find yourself in and is ultimately your choice. Even if you cannot find support at your institution, 
know that there is support available to you, discussed in chapter 12. Now that we are up to speed with what mental health is, let's explore the PhD mental health crisis in more detail.